You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, I want to invite you now to join me in our journey through the letter from the half-brother of James, and we'll be in James chapter 3. And so if you are maybe new to Christianity or maybe new to a Bible, don't be afraid of Google or, or Siri or Alexa, whoever helped me. Actually, don't say it out loud. I wouldn't do that right now. Um, I wasn't thinking. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Join us in James chapter 3 as we look at one of the most practical books of wisdom in the New Testament. It was written by the half-brother of Jesus, who, who even though he, he would have been in a position like your brother or sibling and mine to recant anything that he might believe about Jesus as Lord and God among us, he, in fact, is one at the very beginning who introduces himself as a servant to his master Jesus, a, a, a subject to the king that is Jesus. And, and so he gives us practical wisdom about the nature of faith what it is to believe in Jesus. And he's speaking to Christians in Jerusalem who were experiencing a very difficult time. Now that means that if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, maybe you're not sure, I'm really glad you're here and I want to invite you to eavesdrop. Uh, Listen in on a conversation, maybe one of the oldest conversations between a Christian leader in the New Testament and a Christian church, that is James and and the congregations emerging in Jerusalem, but also join in, listen in on the conversation that we as a church mean to have. Weigh this word against what we believe and what we call ourselves to be. And if, if you're in a position where you're not really sure what Christianity is, or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then, man, I'm glad you're here because this is a time you could kind of listen in and go like, ah, is, that's, what, that's it, now I get it. Don't settle for kind of cheap imitations that might call themselves Christians. In fact, James says that would be unhelpful. But instead, I want you to measure what it is that you've come to believe or understand about Jesus and the Bible based on Jesus and the Bible itself. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, we've come into a, a kind of a new section that's in some ways, con- some ways connected, but, but I want to open this particular text with a word of encouragement and warning. You see, last week we saw that Jesus, or excuse, um, that, that to have faith in Jesus will have evidence in our works. James says that faith without works is dead. And, and there's a relationship between our faith in Jesus, that we're made new in Christ, and the works that show evidence of that. That maybe one of the ways to say this is like there's a difference between a profession of faith in Jesus and possession of faith in Jesus. And this chapter opens up one of the most difficult and probing parts of the book, and maybe even in the New Testament. It's the most thorough explanation about the language that we use, the words that come out of our mouth, and the things that our tongue does as a result of the state of our own heart. Earlier, James says that the scripture is like a mirror that you look into, that you carry with you, that reminds you of who you are and who God is. So I want to to warn you and encourage you. This this is an abrasive word. It's a mirror, and and I'll say this at the end as well. You don't have to be afraid to look into the mirror of God's word. There is nothing that you will find here for which the Son of God has not already made provision for. There is nothing that could be made evident about you or me That Christ has not already died and been resurrected to heal and restore and make new. 
And so as we look into this mirror, you don't have to be afraid of what you see. You can know that the Father already sees it. In fact, it's it's his joy to hold up the mirror for you and I to see. Not to condemn us, but to redeem us and to restore us. And to bring all of our lives into the submission and joy and hope that is found in the gospel. So beginning in verse 1, look into this mirror of God's word. We'll read the first 12 verses of chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This past week, I would say even certainly on that note, this past year has been a reminder of just how frail we truly are. And this past week, our brothers and sisters in southern states and one particular state that I won't mention but have an affinity for because I was born there, has experienced that human frailty in devastating fashion. And a quote from a Facebook post that became very widely circulated from a mayor, again, I won't say his name or the community, goes like this. Let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute, okay? I wish everyone else was that generous, right? No offense. No, here, here we go, right? No one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. 
I'll mind you, the greatest part of this post is the spelling. <laughs> Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and the county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. I'm sick and tired. I'm also I'm editing this for content so that I could share it with you. I'm sick, and I'm sick and tired of people looking for a handout. If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe. If you have no water, you deal without and think outside of the box to survive and supply water to your family. If you're sitting at, at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you because you're lazy is direct result of your raising. Now it's your family, parents' fault. And again, the spelling is what makes this next sentence the best. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. He goes on. Simultaneously, this mayor of this town resigned his post. And deleted it. And issued another statement of... I'll call it somewhat of an apology. Make no mistake about it. Words have power. Words matter. And in this apology, one of the things that he pointed out was that his words were taken out of context. His words were taken out of context, and that people should stop saying mean things to him and his family as a result. Now, on one hand, mind you, this is, this is politics of the last, I don't know, decade. Say something very abrasive and then immediately play like the victim, okay? I'm saying that just for the benefit. If you're going to run for office, praise God, we love you, we're going to pray for you. We want you to represent the name of Christ in the political and social public sphere. Please do that, but don't do this. Be mean and then, no, don't be mean to me. But the accusation that he made is that his words were taken out of context. And what James tells us here is that the problem we face isn't that our words are out of context. The problem we face is that our words are out of our heart. Our greatest fear, James tells us here, isn't that our words are out of context. Our greatest fear, James wants us to know, ought to be that our words are out of our very hearts. Now I'll share with you here in the boldness of this passage. This is the case every Sunday, but I, I feel the weight of this even more. I have so much more to learn in this particular passage than I have to teach. I have, I have much more to, to learn and ways to grow than I have even to lead in this area. And in light of James' powerful mirror that shows us what our words really are, echoing the words of Jesus, that words simply overflow from the depths of our own heart, James telling us that our words are ultimately from a source that's inside of us, a source that reveals a depth of wickedness and unrighteousness that none of us want to admit. I'll confess to you, my greatest regrets in my life 
are saying the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong way, in one or multiple combinations of those things. And James says that's actually par for the course. We all stumble in these things. We stumble in these things in not just a few ways, but in many ways. And no one can tame the tongue. But I want you to see here, this is simply consistent with what James has been saying from the beginning. And in fact, the first chapter, he tells us that if anyone thinks he is a religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives, right here that language of self-deception, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It doesn't matter what you profess to, to believe or claim to know. It doesn't matter what you do even. If, if ultimately the, uh, the evidence of faith isn't visible in the words that you speak, then all of these other things have no worth. They have zero worth. And our words are meant to reveal something about our hearts. And for the Christians in the room, notice this. Our words are meant to be a place of constant repentance and constant grace. Our words are to be a constant reminder of our need for grace. And because our words reveal the very depths of our hearts, they are the place where, in fact, you and I can receive the deepest amount of grace. Because the words that flow from the depths of our hearts reveal what's ultimately true about us, that means that that's the place where we can experience the deepest amount of comfort, of peace, of restoration, and joy. Now, James is an amazing teacher, an amazing teacher. And he teaches us about self-discipline here, about mastery of our words, about understanding the perfect life and about aspiring to a kind of righteousness, the righteousness he mentioned in chapters before, the righteousness that God requires. And so what I wanted to show you here is two main things. He, he demonstrates here the seriousness or the power of words, and then he demonstrates what I would describe as the destructiveness and even the desperation of our words. And he's a great teacher, because as he's teaching us in the first five verses about the potential power of the tongue, he uses beautiful analogies that even a child might understand of horses and ships. But then beginning in verse 6, the second part, when he demonstrates the, the destructive power of the tongue and, and the desperation that the tongue reveals about us, he gives us more word pictures, more beautiful analogies, like a good teacher, a, a forest fire, a world that is an ecosystem with continents, Right? The body, the domestication of animals, poison or even poisonous reptiles, the image of God, a water well, trees, and a pond. As if to say, I sure don't want anyone to miss this, right? He just pounds us with these analogies and word pictures as if to say, I want to make this point crystal clear. I want to simplify it so that anyone might understand it, and I want to repeat it so that no one might overlook it. Now, he means to humble us with these words, and I hope that that even has already begun as we just read the Bible together. But I don't want you to be afraid of the humility that James wants us to have in the entirety of the text, but certainly in this section. Humility is not bad. 
You've heard me say this before. Humility is actually where we find rest. Have you ever noticed no one goes to vacation like near a small, dried-up creek bed? No one wants to take a vacation next to an old, smelly, stagnant pond. Have you noticed that? We vacation next to the things that make us feel the smallest. We like to vacation by the ocean. Because in that moment, we kind of bask in its glory. It, like get a little bit out there and it will kill you. But, but what, what do we find that happens when we're right next to this massive ocean? We, what happens? We feel at peace. We vacation next to mountains. Again, that you could try to scale and it could kill you. But, but we vacation in them and next to them. Why? Because next to that huge and massive thing, the smallness that we feel actually gives us rest. So friend, don't be afraid of what God's word exposes in us and how great and majestic God is and how righteous he is and how righteous he expects us to be. It may seem large and overwhelming, but that's the place you're meant to be. And like a beautiful ocean and like a majestic mountain, right next to it, as close as you can get to it, is the place of greatest rest. So first, the power of words. He wants us to acknowledge and even, in this sense, harness the power of words. And to see the hypocrisy in our own hearts that's revealed in our words. Now think about it. This is a theme throughout the entirety of James. Even just in the few chapters we've been through, he's addressed that people were speaking ill against trials. They were not asking God for wisdom. They were boasting in their worldly status. They were blaming God for being tempted. We're not even out of chapter 1 yet. They were not giving God credit for all the good gifts and blessings they had. They were slow to hear, and they were quick to speak in anger. They were deceived by not being doers of the word that they were speaking and hearing. They were saying to the rich to sit in the good place, and they were justifying sin of partiality in their words. They were professing faith that had no works. And that's just up to this point. We'll see for the next few chapters that he'll tell them not to speak evil against one another, not to say that God is not sovereign over tomorrow, and not to grumble against one another, and not to lie or swear falsely, but instead to sing praises and to pray. If, 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 if you see all these in totality, you might even say the theme of James is our words. And the thing he addresses in this New Testament church in Jerusalem is their words. This shouldn't surprise us. We are people of the word. We believe that God actually brings life to dead places and something out of nothing through what? His words. The very first story of the Bible is that God created the heavens and the earth. And it says, in the beginning, God said. And each day of creation was marked by something that God said. And when God speaks, life abounds. This is how you and I came to be. We are dust, Genesis tells us, that are simply enlivened by the words and breath of God. That's who we are. And the first commandments, the law given to God's people, the promise of a new covenant community they would create and the way that they would live is marked by words, right? Have no other gods, right? No graven images. Think, think already like faith has works, the works of your hands, but then the third commandment, what is it? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Why? Because we're people of the word. And we reflect the nature of God as a speaking God who speaks words of life into dead places. And when we don't guard our lips, we don't, as James tells us, guard our life. 
Now, the book of Proverbs is something I commend to you. Count all the times as you read through the book of Proverbs, places where words are drawn into relief. God is a God of words. And our words are what image God and what make us truly human. They're what distinguish us from the rest of the created order. Think about it. Our words have the power to completely alter the course of our lives. You say, remember those four categories? That's just just four. If you say the right thing to the right person at the right time in the right way, your life will be on a trajectory It's hard to imagine. You'd be in a powerful direction. But remove one of those, or even more than one, and you know what happens. Many of you are walking around with the scars deep in your soul from words that someone spoke to you. Words that someone spoke. I remember the elementary classroom where a little girl chanted, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That's a lie to protect ourselves. James would say, sticks and bones may only break your bones, but words can destroy your soul. And the right word to the right person at the right time in the right way has magnificent power. You and I bear witness to what happens when that's not true. Words have power. Words like yes. Words like no. Here's to scare one of you, uh, or many of you, words like I do. They have power over the trajectory of your life. And so he shows this in two ways. The first is found in the first verse, A warning. Not many of you should become teachers. The power of words demonstrated by James here in those who teach or speak with leadership or authority in the church. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach, now he's speaking like he's a leader, he's a pastor, elder, bishop in this church, and he is by nature, I think we can see this uh, throughout the book, he's a preacher, he's a communicator, he is a rhetorician to be sure. His words have punch and power, they're precise, they're amazing. You know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I'll just start here and say, I love, 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 love the privilege that I have to teach the Bible to you every week. I love it. It is, it is the honor of my life. I hope you can tell. Like, I hope it's evident. I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I hope that's visible. I hope that comes across. But James says it is also simultaneously the most terrifying thing that a person can do. Because teachers, he says, those who labor in teaching, preaching, expounding upon the Bible, applying the Bible, will be held to a different account. They will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I want to illustrate a principle here that applies not only throughout the New Testament, but in this text, and I think for us together. Now, we say this regularly. Because of Christ, you will never be judged for your sin. Because of Christ, judgment day has come and gone. 
Because of Christ, all of our sins were judged and the wrath of God that was rightly poured out on sin was poured out at the cross of Christ. Jesus was the judge who came to be judged in our place. And so it might seem strange for James to say a a particular category of Christians will be judged more strictly. It might be better to say that the way he's using this word isn't the way uh, that, that we might think of. There's not condemnation, Romans 8 tells us, but there is greater responsibility. Because of Christ, you will never be judged for your sin. Yet, you will be evaluated based on what you do with what God has entrusted to you. You will not experience condemnation or judgment over your sin, but you will receive conviction and be assessed and evaluated based on what you do with what God has entrusted to you. And listen to the way he illustrates this. He wants the most blessed people to be the most humble. The more you have, he seems to think here, the more humility you need. Now this is right in line with Jesus' teaching, isn't it? If you're going to be faithful with a little, you'll be entrusted to much. But there's this sense in which, like, Jesus seems to to teach us that the one to whom much has been given, the one to whom much has been granted, the, the greater the stewardship, the greater the responsibility, the greater and more strict the evaluation. Maybe think of it this way. As a Christian, you don't strut. Ever. We have been given something we couldn't possibly earn. That's the gospel. Now, this helps us as Christians. We don't look at the outside world and look at other people outside of the church and outside of Christianity and say, like, you know, I can't believe they're doing what they're doing. We having been, received, we having been adopted into God's family, receiving God's grace and acceptance, we don't say, I can't believe they're doing what they're doing. We look at them outside of the church and out of the Christianity, and we go like, I can't believe I'm not doing what they're doing. And with a deep humility, we respond to this gift that we've been given. The more that we've been given, the more grace that we need and enjoy. The more that we've been given, the more that we receive, the greater the grace that we really do need and the greater the grace we get to enjoy. The more blessed we are, the more humble we are. Even for the Christian to say something bold and wild like God has forgiven me of sin. That's great today. And that would be great if you would just stop sinning. But it's even greater because we just keep racking up the sin. And that powerful truth that God forgives and receives sinners is more and more amazing. It's fueled by more and more grace every single day. And that means the more that we receive that grace, the more we experience humility and the more we experience the joy that comes from it. Now apply those words here to James' words about teaching. The teacher never says, I can't believe you don't know that. The Christian who teaches says, I can't believe I know this. Let me help. 
And the more that you understand and the more that you grow, the more humble that we ought to be because we have to give an account. Now, I, I point to this for a couple of reasons. One, to kind of cast a vision and help you pray and dream about what leadership in our church ought to be like. We're in a season where in, in, in this next season of life, our church will begin to install and ordain leaders at multiple different positions. Who will? And as some of you have even gotten to meet some of these people on these runways to, to living out what James expects of us, you've gotten to meet them and see people trying on this task of leading, of teaching, of encouraging. And I want you to pray for those people. And I want you to pray that our church would be marked by this. But I want to say, be careful not to envy or resent people who teach in the church. Be careful not to envy or resent. Now, I could speak anecdotally about my own, about my own mishaps on this one, but I'll just simply say, when, when you envy someone and their position and responsibility and leadership and authority in the church, I want you to know you're you're probably envying them in a way that misses the point. And James wants to redirect what you're thinking. Like, hey, don't envy that. It's a spotlight. It's a, a stricter judgment. Now, that's especially important. That means we don't hurry into that, right? This is going to be countercultural. People are right now always in a hurry to speak as an expert on a thing. Have you noticed? I read a blog about a thing. Here's what I think you should do. Whoa, right? So we're going to be swimming against the stream here. Everyone thinks they know, but careful how you experience envy or resentment for someone who teaches. They have stepped up into the spotlight in a way that has incurred stricter judgment. Maybe the way I would say it is careful. I'm saying this. This may seem self-serving. I'm not saying it for me. I'm saying this for the leaders that we will raise up to lead and to teach in our church. Careful how you criticize from the cheap cheap seats. Of course you can see all my flaws and failures and insecurities from where you're sitting. All the lights are on me. But join me. Come on up here where everyone can see all your flaws, all your, fra- all your frailty, all your weakness. And notice what he's saying. To step into positions of teaching leadership and authority in the church is to step into grace, not to step into impressiveness. If you are impressed by a person, even a teacher, you just don't know them. And as I share with our gospel community leaders regularly, you can either be impressive or you can be known. You can't be both. And so, sure, you can see the frailty and failure of maybe someone who's leading your gospel community. Sure, you can see the frailty and failure of leaders, public or or abroad or even in the local church, they've stepped into that position. They've willingly stepped into a place where they need more grace, not less. Be careful how you envy, criticize, or resent them. It's easy to do that when you're not in their shoes. And so my prayer is that as we raise up leaders and teachers who take on this bold task, that we do so being very cautious of how we envy or criticize or resent. When they say, look, at me, they're really saying, look at all of God's grace in my life. And James makes it clear it's not about talent. It's about willingly subjecting yourself to judgment, a stricter judgment. And it's hard. Every week, man, I just want you to like me. I don't want to say anything you don't like. 
I don't want to say anything that you might respond in outrage to. I don't want to say anything that would make you not like me. It's hard not to want to deviate from the text for a hundred different reasons. But when that happens, be sure what James says is true. John Newton speaks about this deeply, that false teachers will be exposed to save themselves and to save you, the listener. They will come down. Be sure their sins will find them out. But I want you to know that if weakness, frailty, and failure is exposed in me to the point where I should not lead, teach, or have any authority in this church, I want you to, I want you to see it. When, this, when, not if, but when this happens in my life, in your life, and in the leaders of, the, of our church, I want you to know when, not if, when it happens, we'll remember, oh, this is what James said will happen. And it will happen for two reasons. One, to care for that person. God loves me too much to let my sins stay a secret. And he loves you the same way. And he loves the church too much to let false teaching lead it and guide it. It won't feel like it, but James says it's actually an act of grace. And here's what I would say to you. If you've ever been mistreated by someone in the name of Jesus, God help us mistreated, or this is, this is a real thing. In the last decade, this is coming to light, is it not? If you've been mistreated or abused by someone who led in the church, James wants you to know that person will not get away with it. God loves them too much. That's radical. But God loves you too much, and God loves his church too much. And don't worry, those people will fade away. They'll disappear. It's God's mercy to let those people fade away, and faithful teachers will step in and take the baton. Our words are meant to be a constant place of repentance and grace. And I pray that we would raise up leaders. But I also, by James and his wisdom, I pray that we would scare off a lot of bad leaders. Because words reveal the depths of our heart, they're the place where we can experience the deepest grace. And that's especially true here for leaders. But it's also true for you. The more grace that you've been shown, the more grace that you're expected to demonstrate and pass on to others. You're not allowed to say, well, he's talking about someone else. Every single one of you is a teacher. Every single one of you, if you've been given the Holy Spirit, have been given the power that raised Jesus from the dead to declare boldly the good news of Christ's redeeming work. You also have a stewardship. And I want you to catch fire with an excitement with declaring this to the people around you. This isn't just for someone else. Think of it this way. Our words are a reminder of our constant need for grace. They're a reminder that God is going to give you and me, as the creatures he's made us to be, all the grace we need. And remind us to need and depend upon him. You see, I wake up in the morning and sometimes I just forget that. Here's the worst, the worst part. Sometimes I wake up and I just don't want to believe that. I want to wake up and say, this is the day I won't need grace. Got this. This is the day I won't need anyone to forgive me. I won't need anyone's mercy and anyone's grace. And then you know what happens? I open my mouth. <laughs> and maybe you this morning, you were like, maybe this is the day that Jonathan doesn't need grace from me. And then I open my mouth. Nope. 
still needs grace. <laughs> Every day, new morning mercies. And the words start coming out of your mouth and mine. We're meant to see those as reminders of just how much grace we need and just how much grace God has supplied. You see, words have the power, either a blessing or a cursing, to give life or to take it away. We all stumble in many ways, he says, but, but if, if you don't stumble, you'd be perfect. And not only would you be able to bridle your tongue, but that would actually control your whole body. And then he gives us two pictures of a, a bit in the mouth of a horse and then a rudder to guide a ship. Now, I know very little about horses and ships. I would love to, in, like, this is where I'd be like, the other day I was riding a horse, and let me tell you, I don't have that. Someone else in the room can teach that more authoritatively than me. But, but just notice the principle he's trying to convey. Very small things have very great power. And God has made you and I, in his image, such that even something small, like the words of our mouth, have the most impact and power. Because that's how God made everything, and that's how God has made you and me. We reflect his image in this way. There's incredible power. So also, verse 5 says, the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of so many great things. Sticks and stones may only break your bones, but words might destroy you, your life, and the lives of everyone around you. They're a constant need of grace. Here's a second part here that we'll end on. We see then the destructiveness of words and the desperation of our words. How great a forest fire, a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And he gives examples of fire, and he gives an example of a world, right? It's like, well, I thought my tongue was just, I mean, you know, maybe I said some bad things. He's like, no, it is a world of unrighteousness, a world with countries, continents, oceans, weather, seasons, right? That's, that's, it's, it's its own world. It is a, it's its own planet. That's how vast the unrighteousness is in our tongues that spew from our heart. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire itself by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, and it gives a picture of the animal kingdom. We can domesticate these animals, but no one has been able, according to verse 8, to tame the tongue. It is restless. It just keeps going. So hang on for just a moment. What we find here is if, if you're not a believer in the room, I want you to just see, see what James is saying for what it's worth. If, if you're like me, you were probably raised in a context in which you were led to believe that people are sort of good. We're just intrinsically good, and there's good in your heart, and you should you know, let it out, and, and we're, we're all just really good people. But notice what James says. That misses the need of God's grace. In fact, people are quite evil, and he goes to great lengths to illustrate it. In the depths of our heart is the power and authority of hell, of demonic realms. And no one can stop it. It's restless. Why does he say this? So that we will begin to understand the depth of our need for God's grace for us. Notice the way Jesus illustrates this in Matthew chapter 15. He says, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But instead, what comes out of the mouth, this is what defiles a person. So here's what he's saying. If you don't know yourself by your words, don't worry, everyone else will. If this doesn't seem true for you, if you're like, no, I'm not that. I'm actually really good. Down deep, in fact, down deep is where I hide all my good thoughts, right? These are 
all the good secrets are down here in the depths of my soul, and that's where all the good things come from, right? And if it weren't for all of you people, we'd be able to see more of the good in me, right? But the circumstances and you, right, like my boss, or they, they keep, right? And you might think like, hey, that, this isn't true of me, but guess what? Everyone around you know that's not true. Everyone around you knows that's not true. And if you don't hear the words coming out of your mouth and realize how restless the evil and frustration and discontentment is that's flowing from them, then here's the thing. God has been kind enough to give you other people if you haven't stiff-armed them all out of your life. And God, especially here for James here in the church, has given people who, like we saw a few weeks ago, are slow to speak but quick to listen and say, hey, I, I heard you say that thing. I mean, isn't that true if you've ever been to counseling, you've been to a therapist? What do they do? They get you talking. That's why most of you are terrified of that, right? Like, don't, don't make me speak that. Forget that. Because we're revealed by our words. And what we find out in our speaking is just how deep the problem goes. And if that still doesn't seem believable, friend, if you're not a believer, I just would ask you this. Haven't you seen the devastating effects of words? Haven't you seen words destroy? Haven't you felt words destroy? If you don't know yourself by those words, don't worry. Everyone else will. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 15. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach is an expelled? For people who are like saying, well, it doesn't really matter. You, know, you really need to just not disobey. You need to just manage your behavior. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from what? The heart. And that is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, he's given an example of like a, a kind of obedience that was expected and yet Jesus says was deceiving them about the depths of their depravity. Here's what this last section tells us. We don't have a vocabulary problem. We have a heart problem. Now, I'll confess to you, I remember learning this in such a way that, or, or responding to this kind of passage in such a way that it was basically like, stop saying curse words. But we'll come back to how that's not actually what he's saying. That's like the scratching the surface of what he's saying. Maybe think of it this way. You have never... Ever, 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 ever spoken a word in your entire life that did not come from your heart? Never. There's not a single word Jesus tells you that you've spoken that didn't come from your heart. Now, here's the catch. Maybe you ought to carry around a tape recorder. I have tape. Nobody has a tape recorder. That's not... See? See? They just, things just... Words just come out, and now you know. You're like, he's tape recorder. Who's that guy? Yeah, Exactly. You keep it a secret as long as you can, but one day I'll have a tape recorder. I will have a tape deck in a car someday. <laughs> Jack Miller, an author, gave what he called the sonship tongue assignment. Five laws. Law number one, this week, do not gossip. Do not say anything negative about anyone. Do not even confess their sins. Do not mention your frustrations or irritations about anyone around you. Anyone. Rather, only speak well of others. Law number two. Do not complain about anything, but instead give thanks 
for all things. Law number three, do not blame shift or make any excuses. Do not justify yourself in any way for anything, but instead own all your mistakes, confess all your sins, outward sins, and the motives of the heart as well. Law number four, do not defend yourself, but instead acknowledge where the critique is accurate. Law number five, do not boast about anything in yourself, but do boast in your weakness and in your need. If you can follow all of those laws this week, then you can prove James wrong. But here's what I know. Those things will be impossible for you to accomplish even today. Don't grumble, don't boast, don't gossip, don't even repeat bad information, don't run anyone down, don't excuse yourself or justify, only affirm people. And then you will realize the power of words. And then you will understand that the words that come out of your mouth are actually a reflection of a deep disposition of your heart. So where does that leave us, James? No one can tame the tongue, so what do you want me to do, James? Listen to what he's saying and has been saying in this book. We are to be humbled and even hopeless, even hopeless by the reality of our words and then entrust ourselves to the true and better word of God that came to us in the flesh. You're meant to see the depths of depravity that come out regularly in your words and fling yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ. And other people will help you with this. They'll help show you what your words really expose about you. And you will experience, and that's why I started with this, you don't have to be afraid of finding that out. There's grace waiting. There's grace waiting. It's just waiting. The only one trying to avoid it is you. The only one trying to stay and keep it a like, stiff arm's you know, length of, from this grace is you. And once you realize that that need of grace goes down into the depths of your soul, it comes flooding in. It comes flooding in. And you'll do one of two things. One of two things. You'll hear James' words that seem harsh and brutal about words and try to make light of them. Or you will collapse helpless into grace because of your words. You will do one of two things. You will leave today thinking like, this, my words are not that big a deal. Right? We started about this. I was just saying. <laughs> it's not what I meant. Right? And you'll either find ways to justify or minimize that your words are not a big deal. Or you'll see how big a deal they are and you will throw yourself headlong into mercy. And friend, you will be caught. You will be caught. And do you know how I know? The Gospel of John tells us at the very outset that when God came to be with us and for us, do you remember how John tells us it came? And the beginning was what? The Word. The Word. It was in the beginning. There's nothing that came into being apart from this Word. And this Word came into flesh. And this Word is a Word of mercy, of redemption for you and for me. And you will either make light of your words or you will receive the true and better word. Here's how uh, my, my favorite illustration of this is in, from the writer of Hebrews, and we'll land on this. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging people about who Jesus is and the supremacy of his uh, accomplishments and reigning over us. And, and he says, you have come to Mount Zion. So he's giving a list of things that you come to, right? 
So you come to Mount Zion, right? This is a symbol of God's protection and refuge. You come to Mount Zion, and you come to the city of the living God, right? To, to God's people to belong, and, you, and, and, and to God. You even come to God himself, the judge of all. And you come to the spirits of righteous made, of, of the righteous, or excuse me, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you come to Jesus, who is a mediator of a new covenant. Here's what else you come to. You come to the sprinkled blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's making reference to our great, 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 great grandfather, Cain, who killed our great, 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 great uncle, Abel. And in the heat of passion, killed him. And the curse that was over him, do you remember it? That his blood would cry out against Cain forever. His sin, his unrighteousness, his greed, his rebellion against God would be cried out against him by the blood of Abel forever and ever. But friend, do you hear it? Jesus speaks a better word. The word that Jesus speaks is not a word of vengeance or wrath. It is a word of mercy. And you will either make light of words, including the good, true, and better word that is Jesus, or you will receive this word as a gift. You will let it wash over you. Your words are the most important things about you. Words reveal everything that matters. Friend, throw yourself headlong into the word made flesh. Receive the good and better word of redemption and restoration that comes to you and to me in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that came to be with us and for us in Christ. Thank you for even the imagery and thank you for the miracle that that is. God, I confess that my words are words of vengeance. My words are words of wrath and anger. And if I were you, the word I would have spoken to me and to everyone else would be a word of destruction. But thank you that from the beginning... In the very beginning, there was a word you were speaking to me and to the people in this room. And that word is a good and better word. It is Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. Thank you that that word is declared. I pray that that word would be declared and on our lips today, weekly, as we gather as a church I pray that that would be a word that might be heard even for some in this room for the first time. Maybe for some in this room, they've, they've kept you at a distance. Might now they invite you near and receive a word of healing, a word of comfort, a word of restoration. For the wounded, God, would you speak a word of healing? For the burdened, would you speak a word of rest? For the sinner, would you speak a word of conviction and forgiveness? For those of us feeling condemnation and shame, would you, would you speak a word of acceptance? Might we hear and receive this powerful and mysterious word, a word not of vengeance, but a word of restoration, redemption, and acceptance that comes to us in the very flesh of Christ. Help us to look to him in faith. Help us then to fill our own breath with praise 
knowing that these are the words that we will be singing and shouting and declaring forever and ever and ever and ever. Thank you that this is true because of Christ, the Word made flesh, the perfect Word, the only one who could tame his tongue and speak words of mercy to us. Amen.